in and out. Yeah. Yeah. All right, everyone. How are you doing today? I hope you are doing fantastic. This is Raphael Garcia here with Schwan Humes back for the first time in a few weeks because I've just been too damn busy. But we're back at the perfect time because we have a big UFC card this weekend with UFC 267, two title fights on the line. So before we hop into all of that, as always, I want to thank you and taking for taking the time to listen to the show, supporting us. Please be sure to hit a like and subscribe and share this uh, show wherever you have your social media. But as always, you can catch us on various podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Spotify. You can hit us up at MMA Ratings Net on Instagram and Twitter and at our flagship over at MMA Ratings dot net but Schwan, um how you doing there sir uh no no complaints here just been just busy as always always something to do there's always something to do man that's funny i saw something the other day on instagram i think about the real life uh the real life the real life of adult is that there's like a never-ending list of things to do you finish one thing there's something else you finish something else and there's something else so there's a never-ending situation tell people not to rush to grow up because your downtime is usually usually if you're an adult your downtime it's you resting when there's something else that should be being done at that moment nine times out of ten nine times out of ten it's always something when you finish that there's always something more yep so, literally every time let's keep it rolling from there let's start with this weekend we have UFC 267, two title fights, light heavyweight title fight with Jan Blachowicz taking on Glover Teixeira, and then an interim bantamweight fight between Peter Jan and Corey Sanhagen. We're going to start with Blachowicz and, and Teixeira first. And I think this is a very, both of these fights are very interesting to me for different reasons. With Blachowicz and Teixeira, I think you have two guys that, for the most part, people don't think twice about. When you think about light heavyweight, of course, the conversation always starts with John Jones, even though he's still not in that division right now. Blahovich is champion. He's defended that belt, what, twice now, I believe. And he has looked very good, very, um, I don't want to say dominating, but he's done pretty much done so in his last two fights. And you have Glover, who's the old guy who doesn't go away. He's the old man on the block that they call when they need to piece up some youngster in the middle of the street, calling him young blood the whole time. That's Glover for you. So we have a guy who's in his 40s doing one last run to the top, and he is facing Blahovich in what should be a pretty interesting technical fight here. Uh, Shawan, what are your thoughts about this fight from a technique standpoint for both men, and how do you see it playing out? Uh, I mean, this fight really, I mean, Glover used to be thought of as some kind of striker, and he's always been fairly limited, basically a right hand, some basic kicks and stuff. He's never been really an all-around striker. Jan's got the better got the better range, better footwork, more balanced striking skill set, and a more refined striking skill set. And the advantage that Glover has is Glover is a much better wrestler, and he's a much better overall grappler. He can be dangerous from superior or inferior positions, he can get submissions, sweep, um, counter guys, and and punish people from a myriad of decisions, positions. The question is ultimately going to come down to who can impose their will and who can get to their spots without being harmed. Um, Glover has a lot of mileage on him. So for him, 
he, he's really got to be tight on his on his stand-up defense so that he can get to Jan's body or his legs and get those takedowns and get those tie-ups without getting chipped up or clipped on the way in because he he doesn't really I mean in the his last five or six fights he's been rocked badly in every single one of them so you have to think that if he gets hit hard by Jan, he's going to get dropped or stopped himself. So he's got to have a real tight defense, a real good footwork to get into position, drag him to the ground, maybe choke him out, maybe just pound him out. I don't know, whatever, or maybe just control him. But um, once again, that requires him to get into position without getting clipped. And he hasn't been able to do that in like his last six or seven fights. He's been in danger in every single one of them. And the fight does start on the feet. So, I mean, it comes down simply as it's almost like a wrestler Grappler versus striker again. Obviously, Jan can grapple and strike and wrestle a little bit to some degree. And Glover's not a total novice on the feet. He's got some experience. He's he's fought for years and years, so he understands his game. He can he can impose his will a little bit on the feet, but his shortcomings physically now from all the fights and in, in his age I mean he he doesn't have very much room for error. And the biggest problem for him is his entries, whether it's striking or grappling have never been great. And when you face a guy with that much length and that long a jab and those long, long straight line kicks, it's going to be really hard to get to him when you're already not great at getting entries on people who have less length, less poise, and less um, less tools to use on the beat. So I agree with you there. I think that Blahovich has a pretty strong advantage on the feet. I'm really interested in seeing what happens if this fight goes to the ground. I don't think that Teixeira's bottom game has ever really been um, dynamic enough to threaten Jan in any position. Do you think that Jan even takes that risk? Do you think that he kind of avoids the wrestling and and laying in uh, Glover's guard to land shots? Or do you think that that this fight will mostly be contested on on the feet? Oh, I think he preferred on the feet. I mean, I, I don't think he has a fear of taking Glover down because if he's taking Glover down, it's most likely because he's already had a certain amount of success on his feet. I mean, Glover's permitted some people from his back, but a lot of those guys were very inexperienced fighters. You know, they weren't like, it wasn't like he submitted to John Jones. It wasn't like he submitted, I mean, I can't even think of a lot of people in that category. He, he just hasn't, he's been submitting a lot of guys who have egregious holes in their skill set or lacked experience, and so they would overextend themselves and find themselves on the on the bad end of things. Anthony Smith is experienced, but he's not really a great striker or a great wrestler or a great grappler. Um, Tiago Santos, as athletic as he is, he he's he, he lacks in the grappling aspect of, of mixed martial arts. He he's fundamentally flawed in that. Nik- Nikila Krylov, you know, he's one of those guys who's more all round, more so than devastating in either range and you just go down the list of guys that he's beaten it's guys who who are fairly inexperienced and fairly unaccomplished and he was able to use his savvy and his ability to survive to finish them Jan's not going to overextend himself he's not going to fight at a pace that's beyond what he finds comfortable his whole thing is to control have a measured control pace where he's slowly picking you apart and then slowly ramping it up on you. He's not trying to just blow you out or bowl you over. He'll do it if the opportunity presents itself, but he's much more meticulous in, in, in what he does in certain positions or what he does on the feet or what he does on the ground. So I think if he does try takedowns, it's going to be because he's already having his way on the feet and he's going to finish. It'd probably be smart of him not to because Glover doesn't really have a lot of ways to win the fight outside of being 
being put either put on the ground or getting the fight to the ground. So most likely he'll just stick to the outside. But if I, I feel if he really hurts Glover, he'll go for a takedown and try to finish the fight on the ground, uh, ground and pound. But honestly, I don't know if the fight gets to the ground if Jan doesn't take it there. I just don't know that Glover has the explosiveness or the slickness or diversity in his entries to get to his body and to quickly get him down. He might get to into position, but I don't know that he, I don't think he has the horsepower to just drag him down anymore. And I don't think he has the depth of skill in his wrestling takedowns where he can transition from one to another and, and off balance him and get him where he wants to be. He might do it maybe once, maybe twice, but I, I have a hard time imagining him doing it after that just because of Jan's length, his footwork, and the steady pace he puts out as far as the uh, volume he throws on the feet. I agree with you on that. I don't think that Glover will be able to get the fight down on the ground himself um, because that's where he does a lot of his work from a wrestling game. He has a great top game. He's great at passing and he's great at doing a lot of damage when he does pass. But if he can't take you down, that's a whole nother situation. And I don't see him taking Jan down at any way, shape or form. So let me ask you this, because we're, we're both looking at Jan to come out the victor here. There's a lot of conversation going on about who's the greatest light heavyweight in the sport right now. Um, obviously, we can't count John, John because he is doing whatever the hell he's doing, and he's um, moving on to heavyweight. So you, we have this fight, and then we have Corey Anderson in the Bellator tournament. If both men went out, who is the top light heavyweight in the sport today? Um. I mean, popular popular theory would tell you it's Jan because he's still fighting. Even though the UFC's light heavyweight division is, isn't is that much better than um, Bellator's, it's still better than Bellator's, you know? And um, like I said, if, if, if there was a chance for those, three, those two to fight again, I guess right now you'd have to say Jan, he is the champion. He is the champion. He has the most recent win over Corey Anderson. He beat him. He beat him most recently. And generally, he's he's fought better opposition. Even Israel Adesanya might be a middleweight, but Israel Adesanya as a middleweight is probably better than the majority of Bellator's light light heavyweights. Dominic Reyes, while not particularly skilled or high IQ, probably in general, if he was in in Bellator, he he'd probably be top three, top five light heavyweight there as well. So it's it's like he's facing be- he's facing better opposition, and um. To a degree, and, and to a degree, Anderson is being successful in Bellator. Even if he wins Grand Prix, whatever, the fact of the matter is he was losing against the same competition that Jan is winning against. So until something dramatic happens, it's hard to put him ahead of Jan, whether, regardless of what you think of their styles, regardless of what you think about them personally, it's hard to put him ahead of it because Jan is still winning in an organization that Corey Anderson could not compete in. If, if we're just being straight up and down. So you're going, yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of leaning that direction too. They are one and one against each other. If they fought again, who do you pick? Um, I probably have, I haven't seen enough of Corey Anderson. He hasn't really taken punishment. And his biggest thing has been when he's gotten, when he's taken punishment, when he's been forced to take shots or take big shots or, or take volume. He didn't take any real punishment in Bellator yet. So until I see how he absorbs and recovers from abuse, I can't pick him over Jan. Jan is, is even though he had a size advantage against Israel, 
um, he was taking him. He was taking. There were moments where Israel was really putting it on him, and Jan was still able to navigate that. I don't know that Corey Anderson would have navigated that, even against Dominic Reyes. Dominic Reyes had some big moments of success offensively. I don't know that Corey Anderson would have been able to navigate that if he got hit with those same shots. I don't know. It's necessarily it's a matter of skill. The styles work well for Corey, but Corey's always been a guy who's been able to be finished dynamically because he can't take a lot of punishment and he can't recover from it very quickly. And I don't know that, and that doesn't change with age. It doesn't get better with age. And as I said, we haven't seen him get hit first. It's like uh, the Michael Chandler thing. Michael Chandler looked great until someone punched him in the face. Someone punched him in the face. He didn't look as good. And I don't know. And Anderson has not yet had his chin tested there for, for me to know whether he's addressed that issue or not, or whether it's gotten worse or not. Good stuff there, sir. Let's move on to the Coleman event. This is the fight I'm really interested in because we have an interim title on the line. I just wrote a preview for this for Fanside MMA a couple of hours ago. And, uh, excuse me, looking at some of the data that I found, uh, excuse me, I am leaning Sanhagen to pick up this fight. Oh, excuse me, I'm leaning, I'm leaning Jan to pick up this fight. My apologies. The reason why is because I think Sanhagen, from a from what I've seen from him in the past, he does a great job of pushing a pace, striking from range, but that pace is like a roller coaster. It goes up, goes down, goes up, goes down. I think that that's what created the space to allow T.J. Dillashaw to sneak out a split decision victory when they fall back in July. I think that Jan has enough in him to be able to weather some of those peaks. But he's going to punish Sanhagen in the valleys. And Jan's pace continues to rise. As we saw when he fought um, Aljamain Sterling, Sterling came out the gate red hot. But he couldn't keep that pace up. And then he was end up getting, get, almost getting himself hurt from that point forward. So, Schwan, how do you see this fight playing out between the two? And who do you think is going to win? I think you have a pretty good read on it. Um, Jan is a much, is a bigger, more physical fighter than Sanhagen is. So you know that, and Sanhagen, as good a grappler as he is, he's not the greatest wrestler. So I know that Sanhagen can be pushed up against the fence. I know he can be taken down. I know he can be bullied to a certain degree. Because I already saw TJ Dillashaw do that. And Peter Yan, in my opinion, is a better athlete than Dillashaw. He may not be a better wrestler than Dillashaw, but he's a better athlete as far as being more explosive, being more dynamic maybe even more flexible, having a better sense of balance, all the things that you, you, you combine to be a better athlete, he's a better athlete than Dillashaw. So Sanhagen won't have that huge athletic advantage that he had over Dillashaw because against Dillashaw, he was a, he was a step and a half ahead of him at all times. When he, when he had those big moments of offense, Dillashaw couldn't get away from him. Dillashaw couldn't even really match him. He had to just get his hands on him and physically maul him and lean on him and chop him down. He couldn't stay in an open open cage exchange with him. He just wasn't fast enough. He wasn't dynamic enough. He just had to throw volume and hope he could get his hands on him and get takedowns and force him up against the cage and control him so that he could um, punish him. I think Jan has enough durability to navigate the big spots of offense, but also he has enough skill in a seasoning as a extended striker that he can start making the reads and he can start picking uh, Sanhagen apart. Like you said, Sanhagen is very explosive in moments, but when he's not being explosive, he's, he's not really doing much of anything. And the worst thing about him is 
he has a tendency to look for the highlight real play in every fight. He could just throw jab, 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 front kick, front kick, front kick, but he's going to throw a spinning elbow or throw a big high kick or a flying knee out of the blue. And it's great and it's dynamic and it catches guys off guard. But the fact of the matter is if those if those shots don't end fights or those shots don't land cleanly, then in between those big moments of offense, he doesn't really have much. And that's what happened against Dillashaw. He just got outworked. But um, Jan's going to be able to do the same thing. I think he'll just be able to do it in a more punishing manner. Um, the risk for Jan is as good as he can be on the feet, he his his MO is like Dillashaw. It's volume, it's physicality, and it's pressure, which means he's going to have to take a certain amount of punishment to stay. He's going to take a certain amount of punishment just to to impose his will in the fight. So Sanhagen is going to have opportunities to land on him. I just don't think Sanhagen is going to be able to land the right shots to put him away. He'll land some big shots. He might even have him hurt and, and shelling up for a period of time. But I don't think he's going to be able to close the show. And if he can't close the show, then essentially Jan's size, his physicality, and his volume is going to overtake. It's going to overtake Sanhagen. I don't think he's physically strong enough to keep him off or to get off the fence. And I don't think he, even though he hits hard enough to back him up, I don't th- think he throws enough to really consistently back Jan up. And once Jan figures out his timing and what he's the pattern of what he's doing, because there's always a pattern, even when you're being creative and dynamic, there's a pattern to it, then he's going to start walking him down. It's, it'll be a real touch-and-go fight because Stan Hagen can finish at any time. But in between him attempting to finish, I expect Jan to kind of rough him up and back him up. Yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with that. I, I can see uh, Jan doing enough to win a decision in some of those, uh, when when the valleys in St. Hagen's productivity come out. I have two additional questions about this co-main event. The first one is in reference to Aljamain Sterling. If you're, you are going to be watching at home, still trying to recover from that neck injury, and I think that that's going to be, I think that's going to be a story that we're talking about much more than I think's gotten coverage. I mean, when you have nerve damage like that, you're never really the same. But he's probably going to make a comeback at some point in time because these fighters need the money. They're most likely not as financially set as as they claim to be. So if you're Aljamain Sterling at home watching, who are you rooting for? Um, he probably is rooting for uh, for Sanhagen. He's already beaten him, and he beat him pretty easily. He pressured him because if San if you're backing Sanhagen up, Sanhagen's not nearly as dangerous on the counter because he's not an active. He's not a consistently active counter. It's really these big, huge moments of offense. So when he pressured him, he got him up against the cage, threw him down, and submitted him pretty, pretty easily. Um, over Sanhagen, he's got a physicality advantage. He's got a strength advantage. And I think he's probably a little bit better of an athlete than Sanhagen. So I would think he'd prefer Sanhagen. He's already fought Peter Yan, regardless of what he says. And I can't speak for him. I don't know what he thinks. But regardless of what he's telling me, I watched that fight. And if Yan doesn't, almost intentionally foul him there's no way he wins that fight yeah he came out early and he was he was throwing volume but the volume wasn't really getting through he was just winning because he was throwing a lot and Jan wasn't throwing anything in return Jan was just covering up letting him work trying to find his pacing and trying to find his rhythm um but he didn't really do any damage with all that volume he just kind of controlled the pace because he was throwing so much and once Jan figured him out not only was he beating him up on the feet he was throwing him around and taking him down and, and completely shutting down his wrestling. So I don't know what Sterling, I think Sterling fought the perfect fight against Jan as far as his abilities 
and it wasn't anywhere near close close enough. He fought a perfect fight against um, Sanhagen, and it wasn't it was more than enough. It was it was easy work for him. And one last thing about Sanhagen is as dynamic as Sanhagen is, and all these big explosive knockouts, and people say what a dynamic, incredible finisher he is. If you look at the record of who he's finished, it's guys who are really shop worn, guys who had kind of gone through hell and been exposed as being less endurable or who had the durability beaten out of them over their career. The dynamic KO over Frankie Edgar, at this point, Frankie Edgar doesn't have the chin, the recuperative ability he had eight years ago. He's not the same Frankie Edgar. It's impressive because, oh, Frankie Edgar's only been stopped so many times. Yeah, but Frankie Edgar's no longer in his prime. He's primed to be stopped now. Knocking out Marlon Moraes, that looks great. When you look at it initially, but you look at it, look at how Morris has performed since, and you're like, he might have just been done. And, he, and he, in that case, Morris had him in trouble early. So it's like when you start going down the list, you see Rafael Sunsau, decision, Lineker, decision, mm-hmm. Batista, submission. You don't see quite as many dynamic KO stoppages against quality opponents who are both durable and closer to their prime. So if I'm if I'm if I'm Aljamain, I'm like, you know, I can navigate a couple big spots of offense. I might be able to survive a couple of them. All I got to do is put him on his back foot, take him down and it's done. I had Peter where I wanted him. And I, at first I got tired. Then I got out wrestled and then I got beat up on the feet that I don't I don't know how he would be Peter Yawn. He'd have to take two or three steps forward to become a completely different fighter. And even then it's 50 50. So it's got to be Stan Hagen, especially if he's not the same guy after the surgery, if he's not the same guy. Uh, he already had a he had a hard time when he was at his best. What's he gonna do? What's he gonna be now? So I have one other question about this because it just kind of just popped up in the mind as we were talking about the last fight. So you have this battle between Giannis and Hagen. We also have Aljamain Sterling sitting there. I'm sure you saw the announcement of Sergio Pettis and Kyoji Horiguchi fighting in Bellator. I think in December. I believe yes. that is when that fight is booked for. Kyoji Horiguchi has been my guy. I've always been a fan of his, and I'm interested in seeing what he looks like now that he's back from surgery and kind of like in full swing. When this late January pops around, whoever wins this fight and whoever wins Horiguchi versus Pettis, who are you looking at as a top bantamweight fighter in the sport? I'd probably say Horiguchi for the simple fact he's faced better opposition than Jan or Sanhagen. And he's probably faced better opposition than um, Aljamain Sterling, if we're being real. He's a, he's a dynamic striker. He's a dynamic athlete. He's got a great chin. He's got a broad skill set striking. He's got the karate distance management and accuracy and timing. But he's also got enough boxing that once you up the, up the volume or crash the uh, distance he's set, he can counter you with – he can p- put combinations together. He can counter you with big shots. Uh, and physically, he's he's shown himself able to hang with quality wrestlers in clinches or to defend takedowns and get in better positions or defend takedowns and put them on their back and keep them there and slowly chip them up. So I'm not sure. And Jan has beaten some names, Faber and Aldo, but Aldo's not his best. As good as Aldo is, Aldo is not at his best. As good as Faber has been, Faber is not at his best. Aljamain Sterling. While he's a very good fighter, he didn't beat him, so I can't even. I mean, he did beat him, but we, he didn't officially beat him. But Aljamain Sterling, to me, would have a problem with Horiguchi's athleticism and his physicality. 
anybody that Jan's beat, I figured Horiguchi would beat. I don't know if the reverse is true, given some of the fights that Horiguchi has been involved in. I don't know that the reverse is true, that Jan would beat everybody that Horiguchi has faced. And if they matched up, I'd have to, I favor Horiguchi. I think he's a better athlete, more dynamic and violent striker. And I think Jan's slow starts would probably be the end of him. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this fight this weekend and the Horiguchi and Pettis fight. Just kind of see how that plays out. I wonder if Pettis is going to be able to answer what Horiguchi is going to bring to the table. I am going, I'm leaning no, just because of what we've seen historically from Sergio, but he's grown up as well, too. So let's see kind of what that fight looks like. If we look at the rest of UFC 267, that entire card, Sharon, what else are you looking at as something that stands out to you on Saturday? Uh, there's Kazmat uh, versus Jingliang. That's his first fight back after COVID. He was on a hot streak. People were talking about him possibly being a contender or title challenger, and he kept challenging everybody and having his name in, in the MMA headlines. But then he had COVID, and I think he's been out for, what, the better part of a year? Maybe even two. No, nah, probably just about a year. No, it's been a year. It's been about a year. So I'm interested to see that fight because – he doesn't have a lot of names on his resume. It's a lot of guys who are like third-tier fighters, fourth-tier fighter guys who aren't particularly accomplished. And the wins he had didn't really tell us a lot about him. He just got momentum because of how much he talked and how, you know, he'd been fairly dominant in his fights. But he hadn't really beaten qualified guys who were skilled enough or athletic enough to challenge him. Now I think he's fighting at welterweight, correct? Yes. Yeah, so he's probably assuming his strength and his durability is going to allow him to wrestle and back guys up and bully guys, and it may in fact do that. But it's going to come at a cost as far as his gas tank and his his cardio. So he likes to impress, impose his will on the feet and impose his will on the ground. If he can't do that easily, or if the other guy pushes a pace back on him, given his time off and the COVID issues, I'm not sure how he holds up. And we've never really seen him have to go into anything other than maybe a plan A. I don't know what his plan B is. I don't know what he's like when he can't get the takedown or he hits a guy with his best shot and the guy comes back with three of their best shots. We have no idea. We've seen so little of him. So um, he's fighting a big, physical, aggressive guy who will punish you on the feet and will not accept bad positions. So if he can just control positions easily and just dictate terms because of his size, it'll be fine. But if he gets, tries to take down and can't get it and gets punished, or tries to get a clinch, and he and he ends up with his back against the cage eating shots, I, I have no idea what he's going to do. I know his opponent won't fold. I know his opponent will have to be stopped or beaten in submission, but we don't really know how tough, how durable, or how creative um, Kamzat is. We have no idea because he's never really been tested. He's never really been pushed. We don't know what he'll do under duress. Yeah, I'm interested in seeing how he looks as well, too. And I think they've done a good job of kind of keeping his name out of the build for this weekend, just in case if he doesn't look good. Um, clearly, he was someone that the UFC was ready to strap their uh, horse to. I mean, they he was scheduled to fight Leon Edwards. Uh, yes. and, that's, and that's something that when you look back at that, we're like, not that that was a piss-poor decision or something like that, but it was a clearly a setup fight for Edwards because they want to strap this guy up and get him in the title picture as quickly as possible. But we haven't heard too much about him coming into this Saturday's card, and I think they've done a good job of hiding him away just in case if um, so if he doesn't look good or if he has further complications from COVID. 
Yeah, it'd be it'd be hard, hard to look good with given his style and given, you know, I mean, we have no idea what I, we to be honest, I don't know much about him as a fighter. He's big, he's strong, he's aggressive. I don't know if he maintains aggression when he gets hit back. I don't know if he maintains aggression when he gets tired. I don't know what happens when he can't get to the positions he wants to get. He looks dynamic when he can get him. What happens when he can't? I, I guess we're going to find out. So one other thing that stood out to me is, is Amanda Hibas. She's coming back as well, too. She's on. She's not even on the main card. I think she's on the preliminary card, which I think is the right slot for her. What do you see? Because uh, the last time we saw her, she was getting pieced up by Marina Rodriguez, getting finished by her. She's fighting uh, Yandaroba, who I think this is a good fight for both women because Yandaroba, she, uh, she obviously she can go on the floor, but she's a little bit more reckless with her striking because she uses it to get in close and get the fight down to the ground here. Rebus versus um, uh, Jandaroba, Schwan, how do you see this fight playing out? Because this is one that I really have my eye on for Saturday. Well, the thing about Jandaroba is she's gotten better with her striking. It's not great, but it's a little bit more educated. What helps her is, unlike a lot of grapplers, she doesn't, she's not afraid of getting hit, and she's perfectly willing to get into heavy exchanges because, A, that... Uh, sets up takedown attempts for her, or even if you're just swinging back and forth, you could get in, end up in a clinch and find yourself off balance and end up on the ground either way. So she's not going to be scared off with strikes. She's going to be fully willing to engage in a firefight because she believes she can submit anybody on the ground. And she's tough enough that she can hold her own. I mean, when she fought Mackenzie Dern, who's a big hitter, she was right there and it was basically give and take in each other's face, exchanging blows. And she, she held up well under Mackenzie Dern's power. And I think Dern's a bigger hitter than Hevis. What Dern isn't is a more balanced or more accurate striker. Hevis has got a lot of advantages, mainly in the striking exchanges. And she'll be able to transition into takedowns and probably be able to throw her or sweep her and just reset. I assume, I assume she's going to try to imitate her plan with Mackenzie Dern. She's going to strike with her on the feet, catch her off balance, sweep her, throw her, reset. Slammer, get back up, reset. She doesn't want to get in extended exchanges with John Deroba because it's just it's a losing proposition. She, I, not that I'm saying she couldn't hurt her on the ground. There's just no need to go there unnecessarily, unless and no need to go there and stay there. And I, I don't expect her to do that. I expect her to get quick takedowns, trips, body locks, throws, get right back to her feet and reset. I expect most of the fight to be handled on the feet. And my only concern is. How does Hebus respond from a KO stoppage? If she's completely owned the fight and she accepts what happened, she should be fine. But once your switch gets turned off, it only gets easier to turn your switch off again. Not saying John Jarob is the person to do it, but after a big KO loss, you know, it's never surprising when a guy get when a guy gets finished, you know, in the next fight or the fight after after a big KO loss. Because, you know, especially when it's their first time being stopped. It requires a change in strategy and a change in mentality that some people aren't aren't capable of making. So we'll find that out about Hebas this Saturday. Yeah, because she, I mean, she, in all for all intents and purposes, in that fight, she basically got stopped twice. She got stopped the first time. The ref didn't really was it her thing? Didn't jump in well enough, and then she gets basically gets stopped again. So she took some extra damage there. But that's still a fight that I'm looking forward. to. amount of time off to kind of recover because I don't think she's fought in like what a year year and a half oh that was this year was it yeah I feel like she's I feel like she's been on the cage for a really long time that was this year um 
She got knocked out by Marina Rodriguez back in, well, that was January. So, it, it, yeah, almost a year. Yeah, so she she took some time back, and I like when they take time out to really hopefully look at film, make some adjustments, and get their head on straight and take the appropriate rest instead of rushing back in to face someone and then, you know, moving further down the uh, title picture because they can't, they don't want to take the long road, which is actually better for them long term. So I, I have good, I have a good feeling about this for Hebas, but I do have concerns because like I said, it's her first knockout loss and uh, it was a pretty bad one. So we're, we're going to find out because she's not going to have the, she's not going to have some of the advantages she always has in fights. And that's what got her in trouble last time. She wasn't able to just dominate every single position. So once again, she's fighting someone who she won't be able to dominate every single position against. Good, good. So let's um, let's move on, and let's talk about. Hmm. Let's stick with the agenda because we we got some news to talk about coming out of PFL that we'll hop on in a second. Did you see that um, Clarissa Seal just lost? Uh, no, I didn't. Yeah, she lost via split decision. We'll be talking about that in a second. Kayla Harrison still hasn't fought, so I'm trying to save a little bit of time and, and see what happens, if we can get that in on the show as well, too. But let's talk about Shakur Stevenson. He picked up a dominant win over Jamel Herring on, uh, I think that was this past Saturday as well, too. What are some of your thoughts about that fight there, Siobhan? Tell us, tell us some of our viewers and listeners more about Stevenson and, ask, and, he, and why he's someone that we should see more of. Well, it's a good fight. It, the reason Stevenson is going to start making some headway is because he's been talking the talk and trying to walk the walk. Yet Teofimo Lopez, who had that huge win over Lomachenko, but in between COVID and his mandatory fight being pushed back, he hasn't been in the ring for over a year now. I mean, Lomachenko's had a comeback fight and has another fight scheduled. And Teofimo will, I think he's supposed to fight in November. So it's like he, he hasn't really done anything. Javante Davis has had two big wins, and while they've been high-profile, highly-covered wins, it's not over elite guys. Uh, Leo Santa Cruz isn't elite at the weight class that Davis beat him at, and Mario Barros isn't an elite 140-pounder. He just isn't. He's a good, quality fighter who had a belt, but he wasn't elite. And then you have Devin Haney, who beat Jorge Linares, but Jorge Linares lost to Lomachenko, and, and after that, Jorge Linares had, like, lost two of his last five, five fights and gotten stopped in a couple of them. So even though he's a seasoned and accomplished veteran, he was a guy who was maybe a little bit better than 500 coming into the fight against Haney. What Shakur Stevenson has done is he faced Jamel Herring, who was on like a four or five fight win streak, had defended his title multiple times, and he came in there and he made Jamel Herring look like he didn't belong in the same ring with him. He outclassed them as far as an athlete, he outthought him as far as a tactician, and he outskilled him as far as the fine art of boxing. And Jamel Herring is not a bad boxer. He's not Floyd Mayweather, but he is definitely a, a, a professional, well-prepared, um, well-drilled, well-conditioned, mentally tough fighter. And he was never really in that fight at all. In fact, um, Shakur came in there looking bigger and stronger and, and actually in spots bullied him as well as out-athleted him and outskilled him. He beat him in every phase of the fight. Distance, inside, mid-range. Athleticism, IQ, and just straight out fighting. Outfought him. So it, that's very impressive. That's more impressive than Davis's wins because it's over a guy who's on a win streak at that weight class and was a defending 
strong champion. It's more important. It's more impressive than Lopez because Lopez hasn't done anything since. Lopez has just faded from everybody's memory because he hasn't done anything except talk. It's more impressive than Ryan Garcia's win over Campbell because Campbell was never world champion. He lost in his multiple attempts at world championships. So basically, this is the most, and it's better than Haney's win because even though Linares is a former champion, one of the better technical boxers offensively, the fact of the matter is he's nowhere near what he used to be back then, and and he still had Haney in trouble in the last two rounds. Shakur Stevenson dominated this fight from beginning to end against a defending champion, an established champion who had, who was on who who was on a solid win streak. That means something. That's something the other guys haven't been doing. They've been beating guys from smaller weight classes. Even if they beat a guy from a bigger weight class, he's not the class of fighter that they are. So Shakur Stevenson has really stamped himself. And then he, he called he called out Oscar Valdez. He didn't call out anybody else. He wants the biggest name with the most belts in the division. He's demanding that fight. Now, I don't think he gets that fight, but he's being very loud and he's being very um, purposeful in what he's trying to do with his career. So right now, he's got all the momentum because he's shown great athleticism. He's shown great maturity. He's shown great physical tools as far as his strength and his physicality, and he's shown great boxing skills. So right now, he's he's at the forefront. Ryan Garcia's out. He's injured. Devin Haney is going to fight Jojo Diaz, but Jojo Diaz, even though he's accomplished some things, I wouldn't say he's at the same point that Jamel Herring is right now, and Javante Davis is facing another guy who's got a belt, but a guy who isn't nearly as accomplished or as consistent as Jamel Herring has been right now. So they might have more wins, but I don't know that anybody's had a better win outside of Teofima Lopez. But once again, he hasn't fought in like a year and a half. So he's lost any and all momentum from that. Um, Shakur Stevenson probably is one of the top five future faces of boxing. And um, right now he's a total package. I still don't know how well he takes punishment. I still don't know what he does in the war, but I know it's going to take a special kind of fighter to put him in either one of those positions because he's that good technically and he is. He is that focused on his craft. I mean, some people said he's close to Mayweather, and I don't think that's the case. But he's he's one of the few fighters who I won't laugh when they make that comparison as far as legitimate skill sets. Good stuff there, sir. Um, is Stevenson the fighter that will help us get to some of these big fights that we've been waiting to see for so long? Um, well, once again, there's people across the street, Gervonta's with PBC, Ryan Garcia's with um, Golden Boy, Devin Haney's with Eddie Hearn. So being with top rank, that's going to limit some of the opportunities, but he's definitely someone I think is willing to concede some things to get the fights done. I think he really believes he is much better than every single person out there, and he doesn't have anybody really calling the shots for him. I think he di- he, he determines who he wants. Now, he might not be able to get him, but I think he really determines who he wants. Javante Davis has Floyd deciding who and when he's going to fight. I'm not saying Davis is scared. I'm just saying that's the case. Ryan Garcia, um, his decision-making has been very spotty at best. Now he's having injuries. Um, Devin Haney, nobody seems very interested in fighting him, to be quite honest. I, I think Shakur really has a, has a moment right now where he can really build on it. But he needs that other big fight. He needs to be able to do something that puts him up in the in the air of great champions or great stars in boxing. Skills are not a problem. His courage is not a problem. His ability to talk and have an interesting storyline is not a problem. The problem is going to be finding the right fights. 
And nowadays, everybody wants to make sure they get the right payday, which I understand is a business. But in between getting these paydays, they're costing their legacies and they're losing the fans' interest because we're getting fights we don't ask for and fights that aren't competitive when it's, it, it should be easy to make the most difficult and most challenging fights out there. But nobody seems very interested in taking them. I, I believe that Shakur Stevenson is one of the few who is. Him and Devin Haney, I think, want to fight the very best. I don't know that either one of them will get that opportunity, but I know they're going to do their best to try and get it, to try, to try and get it. Good stuff, my friend. Good stuff. Always classic breakdown of boxing there. Let's um, move on to let's talk about one more topic in boxing, which is a little ridiculous. We may have seen this this news this week. I think it came out yesterday, I believe. But there are rumors of a potential boxing bout between Dan Hardy and Tyron Woodley. A contract has supposedly been sent to Willie's camp from Hardy. Is this something we need to see? Do we need to see this? Or should we just laugh it off of the laugh it laugh at it like the relative who brought some nasty food to the Thanksgiving family dinner? I don't know that we should laugh it off just because once again it's two former UFC fighters who are parlaying their whatever fame they had in their combat sports um, accomplishments into real money. So I'll never laugh at that because these guys don't get paid enough in their own sport and they're finding an avenue to create interest for themselves, expand their brands, and to make more money in fighting and also make more money out of it. Let's, regardless of how that fight between Jake Paul and Tyron Willie was, that that buildup with, with Jake Paul allowed us to see a different side of Tyron Woodley allowed him to really show his character, his charisma, his thoughtfulness, his introspection, his introspectiveness. And a lot of people who couldn't stand him before now think Tyron Woodley some sage, thoughtful, positive, um, business-minded master planner. They're like, look at how he took Jake Paul apart in these talks. Look at the stuff he's saying and the emotion he's showing and the perspective he's given on combat sports and on life. You know, he's changed the narrative on himself in one of his worst fights ever he's still changing narratives so this really helps his brand and it really helps his 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 pocket his pocketbook because he got paid very well to be in this fight um dan hardy smart he talked trash about tyron woodley and i'm not saying it wasn't genuine or it wasn't a setup but he created he created a lane for himself to make money and to partake into the uh, increased Q rating that Woodley had. He saw that Woodley was getting some heat. Woodley's got a bigger brand now. Woodley's got a name, you know? So now Dan Hardy's in that sphere now, and now Dan Hardy can make probably more than he made in the UFC for any one fight by fighting Tyron Woodley and not having to fight him in, a, in, a, in an MMA match, fight him in a boxing match, which in theory, he should have an advantage because he's a probably a much better striker. I'd probably say a more seasoned and more skillful striker, not a, not the athlete that Willie is, not the power puncher that Willie is, but a better striker. So he's not having to fight him in a in a more dangerous setting. He's going to get paid more money. He's going to have an opportunity to sell himself and who he is and what he is and what he does, which is going to help his brand moving forward, whether he continues to cover MMA or he continues to do independent work outside of working with the UFC. This can only help him go up. So while it's not high-level boxing, it is still two high-level combat combat athletes who are going to take it seriously 
And even if you don't buy that angle, it's two combat athletes who were probably over underpaid the majority of their career who are finally getting the money that was owed to them two, four, six, ten years ago. Do you see, well, we've already seen this becoming a trend with a lot of a lot of the fighters that we've seen at the top of MMA, but when, when does it end? Because I don't want to see these two guys on a boxing card, you know, one oh and one professional boxer and oh and o. Well, I think Hardy actually had an amateur boxing career, but even still, I don't want to see that. Like maybe it has a place if it's on an undercard of a Canelo plant card or something like that. Then it could probably have some value there. But I don't need to see a boxing um, card built around these two guys. Well, I don't know if you need to have it built around, but e- but if you have good fights built around them, then it'll be worth the money anyways, even if the fight's underwhelming, because you'll have lots of good fights around it. It doesn't have to be a good fight for people. I mean, most some boxing fights don't have to be good fights for people to like them. They just have to be fights. If Tyron Woodley and Jake Paul was a sloppy, terrible fight, but it was a lot of punches thrown and they were getting rocked and dropped left and right, People wouldn't care about how sloppy it was. People would have been like, they came to fight. I got my money's worth. That's why some people like Floyd Mayweather and Andre Ward um, get cracked on, even though they're showing high-level skills and they're breaking someone down and beating them up. People want to see that back-and-forth action. They want to see someone tested and really have to, to, to pull through or walk through some fire or get back up or take some huge shots and continue fighting. They want to see the physical manifestation of what it's like in real life where you're fighting for every inch, you're going back and forth to accomplish your goal. That's what they want to see. And technicians don't always give you that. So as long as Woodley and Hardy are ready to fight, people will think well enough of it. Does it need to be promoted like it's some high-level fight? Nobody thinks it's a high-level boxing match. It's just got interest because you have two guys who are accomplished combat sports athletes trying another sport. Just like if you had um, Lomachenko and... uh, Terrence Crawford's too big. But let's say Terrence Crawford was smaller because he used to wrestle. Let's say Lomachenko and, and Terrence Crawford fought MMA. Lomachenko's got a sambo background. Terrence Crawford's got a high school wrestling background. He's a pretty good wrestler. It wouldn't be high-level mixed martial arts, but you can't tell me people wouldn't pay to see it. Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder train a year in MMA and then fight for an MMA match. That would headline any UFC event. Because it would be the two biggest names fighting each other, even if it's a terrible skill set. Oh, man. I mean, it would. It totally. I mean, didn't, didn't, didn't James Tooney headline when he fought uh-huh. Randy Couture? Was that, was, it, was that the co-main when Randy Couture and James Tooney fought? Now I got to look it up. Hold on. Give me a second. Now I have to look it up because I think it was a co-main of a Tito card. Probably. All right, so James Lights Out Tony fought Randy Couture back in, when was this? Okay, here we go. Back in 2010, 11 years ago. Yes, it was. It was, a, it was the undercard of Frankie Edgar, BJ Penn, too. UFC 118. I mean, but think about it. Like, Clarissa Shields, she isn't, she, she wasn't, a, she's not a great, She's not a great MMA fighter. Yeah, she's a accomplished boxer, but she's not an MMA fighter. Mm-hmm. Her, her her win over a fighter with a losing record who's not ranked in the top 50 
was all over ESPN, all over Fox Sports, had multiple memes and finishes, and people were talking about it. It trended on Twitter. Who was she fighting that was so great? Was that a great example of mixed martial arts? God, no. But it still got attention, and it, that's all it is. It's still combat. She's it's still right now because she lost to a three and fighter or a two and fighter actually. This is she actually did. her first her first loss in any combat sport in, as a professional. Yeah, and she's definitely getting memed up right now. I think it's weird because I don't want to defend Clarissa Shields because she said some wild shit over the last couple of days. But there's also the piece of it where mixed martial arts is going. They're going to jump on a black woman any opportunity, an outspoken black woman any opportunity they can. So that also plays into a part of it as well. But she did, she did lose. She lost a split decision tonight. Um, and that actually gives us an opportunity to segue because Kayla Harrison's fighting tonight. She has not fought yet, but she's fighting a three-in-one fighter. So she's probably going to smash her just like what but, but Taylor's big. Taylor's a big woman. So we'll see if she can keep her off with the range. But I expect yeah, that there, there's a way, there's a way to get to Harrison. And for some reason, no either nobody has the skill to do it or nobody has the will to do it. But it's embarrassing that everybody keeps fighting her the same way i don't understand it so let me actually use that as a as a as, as a conversation point because i'm sure you saw what dana white said about her this week basically telling her to take the money and stay in uh pfl instead of coming over to the ufc where i didn't know but now her and amanda new years are training together so i doubt that that fight would be easy to make but there's a couple of different things that kind of break out from that from what Dana said. First off, he's admitting that he's not willing to pay her what she's worth, what she's getting in, in, in PFL. So that's that. what, what, what is she really worth, though? There, I mean, if, if I mean, she gets paid, she gets paid a lot of money, and I, I get that. But do the ratings match up to that? Is she that big a star? Because Dana White's not willing to pay her because she doesn't she she doesn't have Ronda Rousey's kind of fame and, and star. She doesn't have Cyborg's kind of fame. She doesn't have Misha Tate's kind of... She doesn't have Holly Holmes' kind of appeal. See, here's the thing, though. She could easily... I, I believe if she signed and promoted the same type of... The, the same way, she could draw in numbers to to guarantee here, at least a six-figure fame. The reason why I'll say that is because of Michael Chandler. But here's the difference, though. Ronda Rousey didn't have to be promoted by the UFC. She made herself into a star by just finishing people dynamically in in seconds. You see, didn't make Ronda, the UC didn't make Ronda Rousey. The UC didn't make Misha Tate. The UC didn't make Cyborg. They paid a bigger part in the stars that they became when when they became it. Um, they were already, they were already stars before they got there. And Kayla Harrison has had a whole promotion built around her, and somehow she has not broken through. That's a Kayla Harrison problem. Cyborg was pop, wasn't Ronda Rousey popular, but she was very popular in Strike Force and that other uh, Elite XC. Misha Tate was very popular in Strike Force before she came to UFC. She put she put herself in that position. Ronda Rousey was hugely popular in Strike Force before she came to the UFC. Kayla Harrison has a whole promotion and a weight class built around her, and yet she has built no traction for her own fame. And the whole thing is built around her. If she could make 45, it'd be a 45 weight class. It's 55 because she can't make 45. She made so what her. She's made what's her. But once, what's her excuse? The whole promotion is built around her. What's her excuse? So what are you saying is like, what are you saying is like she hasn't broken through? How are you measuring that? Well, I know when they built a, I know when they built a promotion around a street fighter with no MMA fights, he was 
moving major units and selling out whole stadiums and, and all over popular media. That has not happened with her. And she has a whole division and she's got gold medals to back her up. She hasn't caught the public's attention and the whole PFL women's division is built around her. It is built to serve her and build her name. You so still haven't answered my question though. How do you measure if she's broken through or not? Her fights have been featured front and center on, on multiple ESPN platforms. Um, clearly she's been who who's she's the, been who? in main event segments in the in probably one of the, I'm not gonna say it's it's not the biggest pro wrestling promotion, but it's definitely one that's gaining seed with AEW. She's been featured in other spaces where Rhonda and others weren't. I'm not saying she's a bigger star as Rhonda in any way, shape, or form. However, comma, if she's someone who's the UFC... She's had more opportunities. She's had more opportunities opportunities and she's not bigger than any of them. She's not bigger than Holmes. She's not bigger than Tate. She's not bigger than Cyborg. She's not bigger than Rhonda. I'm not saying she is. I'm not saying she is. What I'm saying is that if the UFC signed her and they could not promote an Amanda Nunez, Kayla Harrison fight as a main event contest, that's on them. Well, they, they could promote the contest, but the UFC doesn't build stars. They give, give you a platform. You, you build yourself. The UFC put put Conor McGregor on big shows, but Conor McGregor made Conor McGregor big because they put Tyron Woodley on big shows, and Tyron Woodley never became a thing. Ronda Rousey they got never put promoted. On they, they, uh, that's a whole other conversation. They never they've never promoted Tyron Woodley in the same way they've done McGregor, any of the change. McGregor, McGregor had a bigger fan base coming into the UFC out of a small a regional promotion than Tyron Woodley had coming out of Strike Force. He just had a bigger one. He had his he, he had his he entire did. He did. And a big piece of that is because how they elevate, they make they make choices on who they elevate and who they don't. Part of it is the work that that fighter does as well, too. That is a big piece of it. But you cannot tell me, you cannot look at UFC as a promotional scene and say that they do not decide who they elevate and who they don't. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they've tried to elevate people before who didn't become stars. They Ooh, tried to okay. do Oh, well, yeah, you're right. Like, they, they, they tried to do that with... I mean, um, they, tried to, they tried to make Tito a big Mexican star. Never happened. <laughs> It didn't, it I mean, didn't work. well, that's different because Tito, like that part of that, Tito doesn't consider himself Mexican. You they can try, say that tried, with. They tried to make Cain Velasquez a star. Cain Velasquez then got over. But Cain Velasquez is, is an example of why you can't just take someone because of their race and put them in a market and say, here, this guy is your hero. He couldn't even speak Spanish. So Mexican he, fight fans are looking at him like, you're not really one of us. Now, if they can't do that with a Brandon Moreno, then that's on them. Certain, to me, certain people have star quality. Certain people, you put them in certain positions, they're just, they're just, they find some way somehow. Like when, when they first got Conor McGregor, what did Dana say? He goes, if this guy can fight a lick, he's going to be a superstar because he already saw the charisma. He saw the appeal. He saw the fans. He's like, all I got, all, all it was in reverse. When most people, you have to fight to become famous for the people with star quality you have to fight to justify your fame. So let me ask you this then. Looking at at, at um, Kayla Harrison, what star quality does she lack? She has the she has the fin- like the brutal finishes where she's wiping her opponent's blood off of her body. She comes in. We've already seen that. That's sec- that's secondary. Like th- no, that's Ron- not secondary anymore because that's all That's all of. Um, Darren Till's career is built off of. That's all of Corey Sanhagen. 
his career has been built off of some of those highlights as real, real highlights as well, too. Valentina Shevchenko, she broke there's also there there's also but there's uh, there's two elements one we've already seen her we've already seen the quick submissions we we saw we saw that with Ronda years before and people the f- first thing she got compared to was Ronda Rousey so she's already in that shadow secondly if we're going if we're going on a strictly popularity thing men or women there's a certain aspect of being attracted to the opposite sex that plays to your popularity Conor McGregor swag his style makes them more attractive women. Even unattractive fighters, their physicality, their manliness makes them attractive to women. That helps their selling point. Kayla Harrison is not considered particularly, she doesn't play to that, she doesn't play that up. And as far as I know, she's not considered particularly standout attractive to MMA fighters or casual fans. And she doesn't even explore that. So there's a whole segment, she doesn't, a whole box, she refuses to check, which would help her argument. Ronda played it up. Misha Tate played it up. A lot of people play it up. She's, I'm not playing that. Valentina plays that up. She she plays ball. Kayla Harrison isn't playing ball. She's not doing that. That's not my thing. Cool, it's not your thing. That's fine. But it's also part of what helps people sell. De La Hoya wouldn't have been as popular had he not have been appealing to women. Floyd Mayweather's money and his style made him appealing to women and made men want to be him. Women don't want, most women don't want to be Kayla Harrison and most men don't want to be with a woman like Kayla Harrison. That's, that's what the ratings tell me. <sighs> There's a value that Kayla has as a main oh, fighter. I, I'm not saying she's that value. I, she's well, no. There's she's a value. That, there's a value that Kayla Harrison has as a main event fighter that should be built around her because the same way, the same way the the detractions have been played against Amanda Nunez, I feel like the, the same type of detractions are being played against Kayla. And Kayla's resume, not her resume, but her highlight reels gives get there there's space there to look at what she's done from a highlight reel standpoint and say we can promote this if she wants to be a star she needs to leave pfl and challenge and challenge cyborg that would be a huge fight it will be a huge fight they just need to pay her for it i'm not saying paying her seven hundred thousand dollars six hundred thousand dollars or something like that pay her what she's worth she's worth Two, three, four, maybe even five hundred thousand. If if they, I, you know what? This is I will put the stake in the ground on this right here. She would draw more individuals than CM Punk did. Yeah, I can see that. CM Punk was paid half a million dollars for both of his fights. You're telling me that the UFC couldn't pay her half a million dollars for each one of her fights if she fought twice? I, I I think they could, and based off her athletic career, they should. But at the point when CM Punk came over here, the UFC got got a huge, huge bump because everybody who's in wrestling, who fans of wrestling, wanted to see what the wrestler could do. I don't know Dude. that everybody in judo wants to see what Kayla Harrison can do in MMA. His hit, the second, because I was just looking at this, the second fight card he was on did 270,000, 275 uh, views, if that. I think it may have been 225. It's a one-time bump, but let's say she fights Cyborg, right? And there's a very good chance Cyborg might knock her out inside of a round. As faded as Cyborg is, Cyborg would be the very best fighter she had ever faced in her life. That's true. If Cyborg Cyborg blew the doors off her, and let's say she looked as bad as CM Punk looked in his fight. Let's just say that. And then you try to to sell her on another pay-per-view. Her numbers would go down, too. You froze there. Did you? Can you hear me? Cyborg survived her beating because it's 
she's been so dominant so many years. Kayla Harrison, everybody knows she's been beating up on fighters who are underweight and who've been put in position for her to crush. There's never been any question about whether she wins or not because she's facing fighters who were brought in to lose. Ronda wasn't facing fighters who were brought in to lose. Ronda was facing girls who people thought could beat her and she just ended up beating them. They were like, oh my God, she's great. We knew Kay- we knew these girls of Kayla Harrison's fighting in here to win. Uh, I would argue that. I would argue that the only woman I think that that was even looked at as a true test to Ronda Rousey was Sarah McMahon. I mean, Ronda defended her title against Besh Kohea. Sarah, Sarah, Misha Tate. People thought that was, that was going to be a 50-50 fight. At what point? Maybe the first one. When they when they when they first fought, but when Ronda came in, nobody had any expectation of Ronda. People didn't know what she could do. So every fight she was in was uh, like, yeah, she beat the amateur girls, but she she she's not going to beat Sarah Kaufman. Sarah Kaufman is a former champ. She's not going to beat her. She's not going to beat Misha. Oh my gosh! This brings me back. This brings me this brings me back to my first point. The reason why people knew that Liz Carmouche wasn't going to win that fight, they knew that um, Sarah Kaufman wasn't going to beat Ronda Rousey. The reason why. Is because the UFC promoted the shit out of the way she fought before she was in Strike Force, and they promoted it. Because you remember, this is right at the time that they purchased Strike Force, so they had access to all the information. But they promoted the shit out of the way she, she finished women left and right. That's why Liz Carmouche came in as a huge underdog. Sarah Kaufman came in as a huge underdog. Misha Tate was closer, especially because that they were on tough together, and people were buying into Misha Tate as a quote-unquote good, like that the good guy versus the villain, but she was still the underdog and nobody, people were surprised and excited that Misha Tate made it out of the first round. I know, but that's because like you look at Kayla Harrison, I like Kayla, but the fact of the matter is when when Dana saw Ronda, Dana said, we need to make a women's division because we need to get a hold of this star. He hasn't seen anything from Kayla's own. And if, if the onus is on Kayla, Kayla's team, to make her appealing enough where Dana says she's worth that. It's not good enough just to win your fight. a totally different position. Back then, he needed Ronda Rousey because they they did not have, the UFC as a promotion didn't have the sway and the strength that they had back then. Without Ronda Rousey, UFC doesn't get an ESPN deal today. So it's unfair to say that he's, that he can look at Kayla now and say, we don't need her because if they had Rousey, if Rousey was in the position that, if, if Rousey was in the position that Kayla's in now today, Dana will look at her and say, "We don't need you either." If Dana, if Dana thought that Kayla could do something for him, like make him money, he would he would reach out to her. He doesn't believe in her. I I don't think I don't think that's the answer. And I'll you I'll give you one more example before we move on. Dana White got into a bidding war with the WWE over Gable Stevenson, Olympian. Charismatic as all hell, athletic as all hell, who said, I want to fight and I want to do pro wrestling. He made it clear. I want these are the two 21 years old, I believe. UFC said, no, we do not want to pay you. Go and fight in regional promotions, do the Dana White contender series, and then we'll talk to you. Why? Because they are in a different position today than being able to do that. They didn't have to say that to Mark Kerr and other Olympians. They didn't have to say to Daniel Cormier, other Olympians who fought in the UFC. They're in a different position today that they can play hardball with other individuals. That's why Gable Stevenson is doing pro wrestling, or he will be doing pro wrestling after he gets done with college, because that that was a better financial opportunity to him. If Dana White was willing to pay him more money, he would have been doing 
MMA. It's the same situation here. Dana does not need to pay these fighters more money because he's in a position where I can say no to you because I'm already guaranteed, what is it, $3 billion with the ESPN deal. All I got to do is put on fights. Well, Kayla has a better option right now, so there shouldn't even be a, there shouldn't be a discussion. She gets paid better over there. Why do you want to leave somewhere else when you I get paid so well? I think she wants to leave somewhere else because she wants that big fight, but she wants to be paid for it, just like then she, then she she'll have to do what Floyd Mayweather did. Floyd took less money and let Oscar run the show so he could get that big fight, and then he called shots afterwards. So even even Floyd Money Mayweather took less money to get where he needed to go. Different contracts, man. He was able to buy himself out. He wasn't Floyd May. He, he wasn't Floyd. He wasn't Money Mayweather then. He fought Oscar when he when he did that. He was still Pretty Boy Floyd. Then he became Money Mayweather after that because he was able to buy himself out of the contract. UFC athletes can't buy themselves out of contracts. Swanee there. I think we may have lost him. No, Swanee there. I can see you. Yeah, I'm here. All right, man, bet. So um, that's going to be the last topic for today because Kayla still has her fault and it's almost 12 o'clock and she still has not, like their pacing is ridiculous on that car. But let's go ahead and, and close it out. Um, what are some of the things that, that you're working on? I've actually turned in five articles. One about Caroline Kovacavich, where her, her, where her career went wrong. I, I did another article on why fighters fight at higher or lower weight classes, kind of explaining the thought process behind it for the fighter and for the camp. I did an article on Juliana Pena versus Amanda Nunes, and I also did a Rose Nama Yunus article as well. And I think I did someone else. I, I did like six or seven of them. I just sent them out to Michael. So I did a bunch of writing. Did they reschedule that um, Nunez versus... It's going to be in December. It got canceled because of COVID. That's right. Okay. Okay. So that that's that's a fight I'm looking forward to as well too. But um, I am doing as I usually do, covering pro wrestling day to day as we always do here at MMA Ratings. But um, yeah, let's go ahead and close it out. You can catch me over at R Garcia underscore Sports across across all my platforms. Schwan, you can catch me at Black Dream Green. And MMA ratings, you can hit us up at MMA ratings net and a bunch of different spaces. But we'll be back for another edition of the show next week. Thank you, everybody, for hanging on and hanging out with us tonight. Um, yeah, Sean, thanks again for being on the show, my man. Yeah, no problem. It's a pleasure as always. Take it easy, sir. No problem, man. I'll see you next week. All right. All right.